What's going on, guys? This is Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Today, our guest is Bill Bronchick from LegalWiz.com. Bill has been a lawyer for 30 years and a real estate investor for 28 years. He's seen a number of real estate markets and cycles. And today, we're talking about things that we can do as real estate investors to make it through tough markets, tough economic situations, things that we can do to prepare for these situations as well. And the moves that smart, successful, experienced real estate investors are making today in their real estate investments. Bill has been a media figure for a while now. He's been on a number of national news networks and, and he's interviewed in the media all the time. So we discussed that a bit as well. It's a very unique experience and wanted to learn about it. So you're going to get to learn about that today as well. As we're in this tough market and we may be approaching a, a tougher market, these are great lessons to keep in mind if you are dedicated to continuing to make real estate investments and to grow your portfolio. Thank you for tuning in. For those of you who don't know, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. Thank you for tuning in once again. You're going to enjoy this one. Here we go with Bill Bronchick. Bill, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Great to talk with you. I love your brand. I think it makes a lot of sense for what's going on now and the topic we're going to discuss discuss today. But for the folks out there who don't know about you, don't know about uh, your business, can you tell us about yourself, your history and what you do? Great. Uh, I've been a practicing real estate attorney for 30 years. I've uh, been an active real estate investor for 28 uh, of those 30 years. Uh, I've written six books on real estate that are published out in the marketplace. And uh, I'm the proprietor of LegalWiz.com, which is a, a source for real estate investors and legal topics related to uh, real estate investing. Awesome. I love it. You're the guy we want to be talking to right now. Uh, it's, it's great when we can get linked up with professionals in, a, in an area uh, that is related to real estate investing, like the law, who are also <laughs> real estate investors. You have you know, informed advice for us. So. Sure. I love that. Maybe we won't call it advice. We'll call it educational content. Um, so today you have a couple of books that I think make a lot of sense for our current market conditions, um, specifically defensive real estate investing and uh, wealth protection secrets of a millionaire real estate investor. Both great. So let's break into those. First, let's start with defensive real estate investing. Tell us about that book and, and what it's about and lessons that we can glean you know, today for today's market. Great. I actually wrote that book in 2009 at the uh, beginning of the downfall of the last market, uh, which we may have some similarities coming up. Yeah. Um, and it basically talks about, you know, rational investing in a way that doesn't rely so much on the market that makes sure that when you uh, invest in a property, if the market is in turbulence, if you're not sure where it's going, how to protect yourself as a real estate investor from financial losses and maximize, obviously, your gains. Um, so it gives the guidelines of you know, how to uh, evaluate a residential commercial property vis-a-vis -vis what the market may be doing. Uh, it's important always to know what market you're in. Is it up? Is it down? Is it sideways? But I think too many people in the 2005 through 2008 made a lot of mistakes and got burnt because they relied solely on market appreciation 
assuming that the market would never crash, which of course it did. And a lot of those people who were investors went back to delivering pizzas. So, um, <laughs> or driving cabs or whatever, um, and uh, didn't survive the market downturn because real estate is a survival game. You know, it's uh, in the long run, it always goes up, but can you survive the ups and downs in between? Okay. So, uh, you know, you, you did make a comment about, you know, we might be in that type of a market today. And, you know, by the time we know what market we're in, it's too late to make a lot of these changes. Right. So, right. I mean, can can we see that coming? Do you think we're in that market oh, yeah. today? We're already, we're already starting the, 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 uh, the mess, I think. Um, the difference is between now and 2008, 2009 is supply of homes was really high back then. Uh, for, I'll use my own market, for example, in Denver. Uh, normal market inventory is about 25,000 homes. Um, we were as high as 32. Uh, thousand homes. So it was ripe for a correction. Now we're at about 6,000 homes in Denver, which is really low. And it's been that way for many, many years. You know, low inventory, builders stopped building after the crash and, and existing homes that were built in the 50s to the 70s and 80s were, you know, short supply. They don't build little 1,200 to 1,400 square foot, three bedroom, two bath you no, know, they don't. Yeah. Garage, brick homes, you know, little ranches anymore like that. Those starter homes, they don't build those anymore, especially in those in that in that arena where investors like to play. Um, so we have limited inventory. But the problem is now is demand. Uh, demand has dropped off because the market has come to a complete stop without open houses, without showings, with lenders backed up. Then what we're going to have is. Um, buyers who are going to drop out of the market and, and then decrease demand. So buyers that are skittish, buyers that lost their job, buyers whose credit's been hurt by this um, economic fiasco that's already started and it's going to continue for a while. Um, so it's, and then buyers who are just completely unfinanceable because they don't have a business anymore or they don't have a job um, when their credit's been hurt. So I think what's going to happen is demand is going to continue to drop off. If we can hit, you know, 20 to 30% unemployment, that's just catastrophic for, for the market. And it's going to be a local thing, obviously, you know, New York's is New Jersey is going to hit, get hit much harder than other parts of the country um, because that's where the hotspots are. And their market wasn't that good to begin with uh, because of the salt tax, because they have high property taxes. Um, but I think we're going to see is um, homes sitting longer, sellers getting motivated, I'll give you an example. Just four houses down, there was a, uh, a house that someone bought last May that all of a sudden is back up on the market and the listing says seller is motivated. Uh, so I assume they owned a restaurant <laughs> or something and now they're going, oh my God, we're in trouble. Uh, I mean, it was only, that's only uh, not even a year ago. It's about 11 months ago that they bought it and all of a sudden they're up for sale. Um, they've dropped the price twice already. Not quite low enough where I need to be, but um, you know, next drop, I'll go knock on their door. Um, so we're going to see sellers who are motivated, houses sitting longer, um, less demand. And that's not going to last, I think, forever like it did the last turnaround. The last turnaround was a good four to five years. I think maybe we're looking at 18 months to two years, depending on the local market that you're in um, before it rebounds, because demand will come back. And with low supply, you know, prices will rebound. Re bound again. But I think we're going to see a lot of foreclosures, a lot of short sales, and a lot of people just walking away from their homes. You know, it's unfortunate and I hate to see it, but they are buying opportunities for those of us yes. who are investors and who are resourceful. Um, 
and I noticed kind of what you're saying is, is focusing on kind of home sales, things like that. But, you know, people being unable to get financed and buy homes for those of us that own rental real estate, that could be a very good thing. Yes. But, you know, there are risks in that too. So sure. what do we need to think about there? Landlords are going to start suffering some pain over the next few months as people are unable to pay their rent as unemployment starts jumping and we're at about 12 and a half percent now and um, things look like they're probably going to double that by the time we're done, maybe more. So, you know, that means you could end up with 30 percent vacancy if you have an apartment building, which is painful. I know some landlords are looking at 80 percent vacancy because tenants are going on rent strikes and using this as an excuse to not pay rent. And that's very painful. I'm lucky most of my stuff is single family and small multi-unit and condos. So I'm, I'm getting about 75, 80% are paying uh, so far. <laughs> we'll see what happens next month. So in the short term, you're going to suffer as a landlord because just getting rents from people who could pay, you can't evict anywhere yet because the courts are shut down. Um, so if you can stockpile a little cash and buy up some deals, suffer through it a little bit, and then come out of the backside a year or two from now, you'll say, wow, that was a good move. Because I remember in 2009, 2010, I was buying up rentals that I couldn't even break even on. Um, and it was painful for a couple of years till about 2011 when the rental market started started rebounding. And then, of course, by, by 2019, 2020, everything had tripled in value and uh, rents had gone up two and a half times. So it was worth it, but it was a pain going through. So if you're willing to go through those growing pains, I think there's an opportunity. I think it's right out of the art of war, out of chaos comes opportunity. <laughs> well, it's true. You know, and this, uh, this does all seem, you know, very temporary, but, but getting through it is going to be the hard mm-hmm. part. And, and like you said, um, yeah. For those of us that are already own or whatever, we need to stockpile cash. But what, you know, cash might not be enough all the time. You know, financing mm-hmm. could get difficult, things like mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. in a tough market, you know, getting the money, say you don't have it. What are strategies that people can use to continue acquiring real estate if they're finding good deals, but they might not have all the money and maybe financing is kind of tough? Well, they should be looking for motivated landlords uh, who might be willing to just get out of the game and sell or finance, uh, do some sort of something creative with a landlord to where they're willing to carry the financing. And then if you don't want to be a landlord and suffer through all this vacancy, there's going to be a pool of buyers who are unfinanceable where you could sell properties to people and you be the bank and carry owner financing because if 25% of the population gets unemployed temporarily, that's a lot of people who's going to have credit hits who can't qualify for several years for a loan. There's going to be a huge niche out there for selling to buyers with creative, you know, owner financing, seller financing terms where they're the owner and you're not a landlord anymore. You know, it's their responsibility to fix it and, pay the taxes and so forth. But if you could find someone who's back to work, who has a source of income, but they took a credit hit in the meantime and can't get a regular loan, that's someone you might be able to, you know, do some sort of owner financing with instead of being a landlord. Mm, Okay. Okay. Those are things we can look for. Now I want to make sure that we get on to wealth protection secrets of a millionaire real estate investor, your book title 
And uh, I think that's a, a obviously a great topic. I mean, we're in real estate. We want to protect our wealth. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, in, in your eyes, is that more you know, protection from liability or mm-hmm. downside protection in just a, you know, dollar sense, not necessarily legally related? Uh, legal taxes, liability, setting yourself up properly so that if things do go bad, you limit your downside exposure and what a creditor like, let's say Bank of America wants to come after you for a loan you defaulted on, how, you know, how successful will they be at getting to what you have? Uh, the unfortunate part is, is that if you wait till you have trouble, it generally doesn't work very well um, because courts generally frown upon what they call fraudulent conveyances. That means last minute transfers to avoid a creditor. Uh, it's really something to do preventative planning, um, like estate planning. You don't wait till you're on your deathbed to do your will. You do it when things are good and you're clearly thinking. Same thing with uh, wealth protection. You want to set yourself up for minimum taxes, maximum liability protection, and in a way that you're hard to get to legally, uh, whether it be for uh, a creditor, a judgment, an IRS lien, um, uh, a liability, uh, or, or, you know, as some variation thereof, some other financial disaster, divorce, um, estate taxes. So I wrote that book um, as a guide to real estate investors who need to protect themselves because, you know, you see this mentality out there of greedy landlord. If you own a property, um, they think we're all monopoly men, you know, with smoking cigars and, you know, boardwalk and park place and just collecting rents every month with no mortgage to pay, no no expenses, no taxes, no insurance, you know. Um, And you see these groups running around saying cancel rent cancel rent you know what are we supposed to do as landlords we have expenses a lot of landlords are retired people they may own it free and clear but that's their retirement other than their social security that's it you yeah know, so they can't just eat it you know we're not all big major corporations with big you know commercial buildings that we can afford to take that hit yeah i don't get it i mean it would it would absolutely such a a, a thing would absolutely annihilate a lot of people and you know small people exactly like you said people who retired depend on that income um so as busy professionals and and real estate investors what what are some of the mistakes that you see uh, folks making who are investing in real estate maybe on the side while they're working a job Mm -hmm. from a, a protection standpoint i mean that people start with all right i'll form an llc and that'll protect me well will it really and what do they need to do you know, right. what's the next step? Well, the first thing you need to do is if you do form an LLC, retitle the property in the LLC. So people will form an LLC and collect rents, but they still have the property in their own name. So <laughs> they still have the liability um, of owning the property. Plus, not to mention that no privacy at all, because someone uh, can look up the landlord. Even if you have a property manager, they could figure out who you are, where you live, and so forth. So I think there needs to be a couple of layers of, of privacy, liability protection, um, you know, giving a few hoops for someone to jump through if they want to find out who you are and what you're worth and how to get, you know, get after you. It's the golden rule of law. He who has the gold gets sued. (laughs) So um, uh, if you make it look like, uh, you know, you're hard to get to, um, then you're going to filter out a lot of the, you know, the nonsense and the frivolous lawsuits. Okay. And is there any, I've heard people talk about this, but you know, I, I know you're in the space of 
self-directed IRAs, things like that. Mm-hmm. Is there any asset protection that those afford us um, as, you know, if we're using those to invest in our uh, mm-hmm. real estate projects? Well, there's, there's, there's a two sides to the coin. Um, IRAs, 401ks, um, retirement plans are generally protected under federal ERISA law from creditor attachment. OJ Simpson is a prime example, $25 million judgment. He still has an NFL pension they can't get to. Wow. Um, so federal, federally uh, uh, protected plans uh, under ERISA, ERISA law, would protect and state law has protections too for IRAs and 401ks. However, if that IRA buys a property and rents it out, it as a landlord could get sued. So what I generally recommend people do in that situation is you could form an LLC that's owned by the IRA. So the LLC takes the hit, not the IRA takes the hit. So if, if your IRA hypothetically owns two LLCs and, LLC A owns a property over there and LLC B owns a property over the other way. Then if the say tenant in the first property sues that LLC, then in principle, the uh, liability shouldn't transfer over to correct. the LLC of the other assets. Correct. Correct. It's the equity in that property that that LLC owns. Mm. So splitting up the basket, not putting all your eggs in one basket. Um, some people put everything in one LLC, which will protect you in most cases from personal liability. So you can't necessarily lose your, your personal residence or your car or your bank account, but you can lose all your properties that way. Um, the opposite end of the coin is people who have 72 properties and 72 LLCs, which is also not a good idea because it's just wildly expensive, very hard to maintain and probably wouldn't work in court anyway because you have to show separate bank accounts, separate accounting, separate books, and so forth. So somewhere in between, uh, you know, every three or four properties or so have another LLC, depending on the value. You know, if we're talking about rural Oklahoma, you know, forty, fifty, hundred thousand dollar properties, you probably put four or five in, in one LLC. In California, maybe two per LLC. Mm, okay, because I agree with that. Um... LLCs and all these things, it's an enormous administrative burden to, mm-hmm. to keep everything straight. And I can't imagine having 72 of them <laughs> and having right. to separate it all. Right. Not without a good CPA and two bookkeepers. <laughs> <laughs> right. Full time. Oh, that'd be brutal. Um, regarding potential liability from, you know, I think people, especially if they're buying individual properties in their IRA are not always careful about not providing a service to that IRA. Right. You know, and, and key and prohibited transactions, all that. Does that open up potential, you know, personal liability in addition to the IRS, you know, potentially dissolving the IRA because of a prohibited transaction? No, not necessarily, unless you do physical work that can expose you to personal liability. So for example, um, first of all, as you uh, suggested, you're not supposed to do any hard labor on behalf of your IRA because that is a, as a contribution of your services, an excess contribution. Um, you're allowed to do ministerial tasks or so writing checks, collecting rents, paying mortgages, very minor stuff. Uh, if you go and fix something, in the property, which you're not supposed to do anyway, um, and someone is injured as a result of what you fixed wrong, then they can sue you personally because you're the one who actually did the negligence. They could also mm. sue you. the IRA owns the property. So you're, you're getting double whammy there. 
you're better off writing a check and hiring someone else and letting them sue the contractor and their liability insurers will pick it up or use the property manager even better and let them take the liability. Mm, okay. Okay. And I, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you're, this is a pretty hard topic shift, but you're a pretty active media figure. I mean, you've been in the, in the media a lot and I just, I would like to ask about that experience and, and what mm-hmm. that's been like um, because it, it, it seems like it kind of built over time and it may or may not have been your goal in the first place. Um, and it's not ex- directly related to real estate, but we got a guy who's on TV a lot. So yeah, yeah, I, get, I, mean, I was interviewed four times in the last month about um, landlording stuff on the local news, uh, you know, with people not paying rent, liability for the COVID virus and so forth. Uh, Denver City issued a proclamation canceling rent, um, <laughs> which is absolutely unenforceable. Uh-huh. And then they yeah. threw it at the governor and said, please issue an executive order. And the governor, who's a lawyer, said, I can't do that. Even the president can't do that. It's a private contract between parties. The, the government doesn't have that authority, which, you know, ho- you know, I was glad he was smart enough to recognize that. But the entire Denver City Council unanimously passed this resolution to show what knuckleheads they are and uh, ignorant of the Constitution. That you can't take from private citizens without just compensation. If they want to give us no property taxes for 10 years, fine, cancel the rent for three months or six months, whatever. But you can't just say you don't have to pay your landlord on a private thing. Notice how they didn't say that to commercial landlords, you know, because yeah. I can't imagine big, some big company like Cushman and Wakefield is going <laughs> to, you know, is going to take it, you know, without fighting them in federal court over a constitutional taking. Yeah, they, they know they know their targets. So have you found that to be like the main interest right now, at least as far as, you know, the, the broader concern is is they're trying yeah. to take it out on us yeah you know the next legislature's in sessions in, in may in, in colorado and they are largely democrat and uh, we have a very uh, liberal mayor too uh governor rather and mayors of the city of denver um and they're talking about rent control as a way to sort of help out tenants like emergency rent control mm-hmm. where they're going to try to cut things uh to the bone to help out tenants. And I understand, you know, this people suffering, but you know, don't make landlords suffer too. Cause then they can't pay the bank and the, you can't pay the bank. They're going to foreclose and throw out the tenant anyway. So I, I don't know what they think they're accomplishing by all of this. Uh, you know, political theater. I mean, it seems clear to me that in a, in a lot of areas, the market is going to have a pretty marked effect on market rents. I mean, if, yeah. Going back to before, if 20% of people who were working are not working now, then the market, you know, is going to adjust for that. There's a pretty heavy right. demand I, shift. Yeah, I don't, I don't know where all these people are going to go. Um, maybe they'll go to Kansas and live in a mobile home or something, but there's nowhere to go below a certain level in Denver, and most of my properties are in that level. Um, so... The problem, I think what's going to happen is there'll be less demand because less people who can pay. But then again, you know, people who are one step up and getting foreclosed may take one step down (laughs) and need a place to rent. So that's why, as I mentioned earlier, those properties, that those starter homes, you know, the little ranches that were built in the 50s through the 70s and 80s that are just not being built anymore are a very hot commodity for an investor because there's just no competition for that anymore. I mean, where else can they go? We don't have, you know, Denver, where I am, we don't have um, D-class neighborhoods. We don't have ghettos. 
um, like they do in Detroit and places like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, C class is as low as it goes. There's nowhere to go from there except maybe a C class apartment. <laughs> you know, you make a great point that, you know, really across the country, they're not building starter homes no. anymore. No, anywhere. No, those are always good investments because that sort of, you know, uh, blue collar working class neighborhood um, is it's, it's not ghetto stuff. It's, you know, it's, it's normal people with jobs and uh, schools and, you know, that they like to go to with their kids. Um, and they're, you know, reasonably decent homes that you could rent out easily, sell easily because there's just limited supply of that stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, this, this brings to another thing that I wanted to um, discuss with you is the invest investments that you're making and, and you're pursuing mm -hmm. right now. I mean, you've seen a, a few market cycles by now and you can probably mm -hmm. smell them coming <laughs> yeah. by at this point. Um, so, you know, moving forward, what are you investing in and what are you divesting from? How are you, you know, adjusting mm -hmm. your strategy to deal with uh, this market reality? I like myself, I'm looking to pick up more of those starter homes because I just think they're, they're always a good hedge. They're going to be less volatile than more expensive A class and B class stuff. So this limited supply and whatever I can get my hands on of that stuff, I'm going to keep buying it. Uh, I wouldn't touch office with a 10 foot pole. Uh, <laughs> Not only because of what's going on, but I think there's going to be a fundamental shift in the, you know, the tenant who's got a business with 15 employees and an office suite going, well, you know, do I really need this office suite or could I rotate my employees different days of the week and have a three office suite and maybe can two or three of these people I really don't realize I need anymore. You know, so I think what this has taught us staying home and people working at home is that it works to some extent and not for everybody or for every employee, but for a lot of businesses, they're reevaluating and saying, you know, do I really need to renew this lease when it comes up? Do I really need this much space? Do I really need this many offices? I think you're right. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think a lot of businesses out there are still stuck in that older mentality of needing that office space where they could really probably go to having people in the office two days a week and rotate that and, and rotate them out. And a lot of efficiencies or inefficiencies uh, will be found as well. And right. Yeah. Right. That's why I, I, I feel really bad for, for people who own office buildings right now, because not only people not able to pay rent uh, in the short term, but a lot of them will go out of business. So their vacancy is going to go up, but a lot of them won't renew. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, in this last market cycle, Denver, you said it before um, about the, de the demand in the market and everything. Denver's had a pretty enormous run up in the last mm -hmm. decade, maybe a little more. Yeah. I don't know the exact yeah. dates, but yeah. a lot of people have moved to Denver yeah. compared to the rest of the country. Right. Um, do you think it's going to continue moving forward? And, and how does that really inform you know, what you're doing and with your investments? I mean, you already told us what assets you're investing in, but... Mm -hmm you know, that, that will that market dynamic kind of shift in Denver? So. Um, Denver's number one and Colorado's number one attraction is tourism, uh, skiing, hiking, you know, lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So they're predicting a major expansion of population and they're, and they're building to accommodate for it uh, uh, over the next 10 years. Uh, another area that I am hot on is uh, micro apartments. 
been uh, partner and I have been looking for buildings to convert in a, in a place to build a new one of the 300, 400 square foot apartment that a millennial could live in. Uh, it's big in Seattle. It's big in New York. It's, you know, it's been in Japan forever, right? Mm -hmm. tiny, tiny little apartments. Um, it's the new trend uh, and because you take a thousand square foot apartment that gets X dollars a month, you could break that up into two and a half apartments and end up getting not two and a half times, but probably close to two times. Wow, that's incredible. I'm, I'm surprised that that's gotten to Denver, but it's just a mm -hmm. supply and demand based thing, right? Yeah. yeah, there's two big buildings downtown that are being built like that with 175 square foot efficiencies with Murphy beds. Wow, I mean- you know, a 30-year-old millennial, you know, or 25-year-old, you know, is who doesn't spend much time at home uh, eating out most of the time, going out most of the time. That's just a place to crash. Yeah. As a millennial, my 30-year-old my millennial myself who's been stuck at home for a month, my uh, whatever, 900 square feet is not enough. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to do the bike. <laughs> 175, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. But if it, if the, if the, price makes sense then i can see right. why you do right it. right and they're usually pretty nicely done places they're a class um and they are very well done very efficient space but you know 30 to 40 percent less rent one quarter of the size wow that is that is wild i guess you know if the, if the market uh dictates it's are, are those being built as apartments or condo complexes so far just as apartments new york's got condos of those of those nature wow i you know I, I, again it goes back to uh the market now out in that area one of the assets we talk about on the show uh with some frequency is mobile home parks mm -hmm. um and those are popular in some areas especially when you mm -hmm. got wide open spaces mm -hmm. does that factor into the denver market at all no, they've pretty much cleared out most of the mobile home parks and redeveloped that. There's not much in Denver. In southern Colorado and some of the more rural areas, there's 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 some still some parks left. Um in the, some of the smaller cities. Denver pretty much cleared them all out. There's a handful of pocket small ones here and there, but but uh there's just the, the land is too too valuable for for that type of use it's not its highest and best use um but i do like mobile home parks uh, they're very good cap rates um there's a certain person that's going to rent a mobile home and uh they have to live somewhere and um you know they're they're much bigger in texas and florida and places like in the south uh, they they tend to be magnets for tornadoes. I don't know why, but <laughs> right. whenever you watch a you know a tornado went through it, it always went through a mobile home park. Um, but uh, they can be very good cash cows and very uh, you know you, you don't have to worry about a building um, and plumbing and things like that. You have to have roads and you have to have uh, sewer lines and you have to have water and electric, but. Other than that, uh, there's, you know, it's just a matter of breaking up the fights between the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I haven't invested in any and I'm always curious how that has shifted in, in some of these markets that have really blown up, particularly, you know, throughout the Midwest and, and where it's right. left. So, yeah, cool. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Bill, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? 
I'm ready. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? That's an excellent supposition in that question. <laughs> education has been my best investment. That's uh, I besides that, um, I'd say the properties I bought in my IRA. Um, in 2010, I converted it to a Roth because there was a window. And there's a window now again, by the way, folks. You have three years to pay the taxes if you do a conversion um, under the CARES Act. So it's a great time to do a conversion mm. if you haven't done it. Um, but I've got Roth IRA and I got two Roth IRA and my wife has got an IRA. So we have three Roth IRAs that we've bought a bunch of properties in, in 2008, 2009, 2010 that have exploded in value and rents and will be some tremendous retirement income tax-free. So I'd nice. say that's stuff. Nice. Uh, the tax advantaged accounts win again. You know, they're, yeah. they're great. Yeah. And our goal is to just live off that income and then just leave it to the kids and they'll do the same. Nice. On the other side of that, we had the best investment. Now that we, we get to the other side of the coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? <laughs> I, um, I tried to do an infomercial once. Oh no. Yeah. I I learned for $85,000 how to make an infomercial for 20. Wow. <laughs> so, so basically I got ripped off by about 65,000 and it bombed, you know, we tested it and it bombed. Um, it was just a, it was a wrong timing in the market or whatever, wrong product. It was in 2009 and it was a playoff my, uh, one of my books on how to sell a house fast in a slow real estate market, but it was a little early. People weren't motivated enough. So the product was too early and it tested poorly. So I never, I just let it go. But I learned for $85,000 how you can make an infomercial for about 20. Wow. What was your, um, what was your like campaign size or where did you kind of air these target markets? I tested them in uh, remnant uh, time in four or five cities on different cable channels. You know, A&E, um, HGTV, DIY network and things like that. You know, we just, we just spent about 20 grand, you know, testing yeah. in various markets and the numbers were so poor that we just, we just bagged it. Wow. So uh, were there any other lessons you learned in that, um, like related to the, the production or, or something like that? Or was it just completely like a, a mistimed, you know, kind of going well, after the market? It was a mistimed thing that was on my part, but in terms of what I spent and I looked at what was provided, I said, I could do this myself next time for 20. So for, it took me 85,000 to figure out how to make one for 20. <laughs> wow. And I bet, you know, if you reassess that now, you might even bring that 20 down to five or six. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, you need to pay the people in the audience to go like this. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, my favorite part of the whole thing was in the original budget, there was 5,000 for catering and there was about 15 people working there and they ordered in pizza. <laughs> Wait a minute. This was $5,000. Man, you could have had a, a professional chef come and make that pizza for that <laughs> much money. <laughs> Bring his own everything. Wow. Yeah. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? Wow. The best, uh, I have so many, but everything is a learning experience. Um, there really are no failures. Uh, certainly I've made bad investments, done dumb things uh, that I regret, 
but I really don't regret it because everything was a learning experience that got me to where I am now. You know, if, if, if life happened any differently, I may not be where I am now. So everything I think consider every experience is something that benefits me and it's here for my learning experience, whether it may be perceived in the short term as good or bad, what can I learn from this experience? And if you approach your business and your life that way, then you're never disappointed. Wow. I really appreciate that, particularly in the light of the, your answer to the last question. Question. I mean, that is a, a pretty considerable amount of money to lose on a business venture, but, and, it, and a lot of people, you know, net worth aside would just be devastated by losing that money and really any investment. But if you look at it as a learning opportunity that's going to further you and make you better in the end, then I guess I think that enables you to move on and get to the next thing and, and make more investments in the future. Right. And it makes me willing to try new things. And I'm consistently trying new things in my business. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but I just consider it a learning experience. What doesn't work? Just figured out one more way that, that, that you know, to not invent the light bulb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. The very uh, Thomas Edison way of looking at things. I love right. that. Bill, thank you for joining us today and, and teaching us about things that we can do in difficult markets, what it's like to be a media figure, and some of the moves that folks can make today in, uh, in this type of market. If folks want to learn more about you and they want to get in touch, where can they find you? They can go to my website at LegalWiz.com, W-I-Z. LegalWiz.com. Great. Love it. Thanks again for joining us. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Very much appreciated. Helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great day and a great rest of your week. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.